0: Today's China is one of the world's most complex and intriguing corners. It's clutching on to both its ancient feudal culture and its Communist Party leadership, even as it plunges into the capitalist frenzy of the 21st century. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. As fast-changing China gears up for the Olympics, it's sprouting futuristic skylines and reinventing itself as a world business center. Travelers heading over there can use all the help they can get. To lend a hand, we've invited three different China experts to join us today. Our experts have each logged countless miles in China. They've each authored distinctive guidebooks to the country, and they're here today to help you connect with the Chinese people and Chinese customs.
1: When you, as a foreigner, when you just go and you interact with Chinese people, you are bringing them the world as well, and that makes it harder for the
0: government to control and to close those doors. We'll get you started planning your trip to China in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're going to explore the emerging giant on this planet, China. China and I'm joined by three experts on China with uh, three very different books and we've got some callers and we're going to learn about a country that'll be in the news a lot this year because of course the uh, 2008 Summer Olympics are going to be in Beijing. Uh, There's just countless thousands of adoptions by Americans of Chinese babies. By some measures, China is the fourth most visited international destination in the world. It's an emerging place. It's of course much smaller than us in economy right now but it's growing fast and uh, by some estimates it will be the world's largest economy in a couple of decades. Um, I'm joined by Fred Richardson, who writes the Streetwise Guide, Getting Around in China, Stuart Strother, who's a professor at Azusa Pacific University, and he writes Living Abroad in China, published by Moon, and Mei Li Chai, who, with her father, writes China, A to Z, Customs and Culture. Thanks for joining us, Chinese experts. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, just so we can uh, establish who's who and, and what these guidebooks are, I'd like to let each of you explain the essence of your guidebook. I know when I've traveled, especially in countries that are more challenging to me culturally, like in China, you need to go beyond just a list of sites, and you need an understanding of the culture, and uh, these guidebooks address that more than a lot of guides. Fred Richardson, explain to me what the essence of street art. Streetwise Guide is to China?
2: Well, the title of the book is Getting Around in China. Streetwise Guide is a series that the Chinese publisher is bringing out. I've traveled in China for roughly 20 years. I've spent more than four years in China by now in 15 trips. It's come to be the most important thing in my life. I am quite passionate about it. Every time I go, things are changing so fast. It is a new country for me each time I go there. I can go back to the same place, and it's almost like being in a new place, even if it was only six months.
0: I get that sense just with the photo cover on the photo with you on a bicycle and the world just uh, thriving around you. Now, this book is not sold um, normally in bookstores in the States, but it's well distributed in China. Is that right?
2: Yes, and it should be distributed in the U.S. soon. It is available in the U.S. in limited fashion.
0: And Stuart Strother, tell us about your book, Living Abroad in China.
3: Sure. Our book is designed for the uh, increasing number of expats who are being uh, offered jobs in China, be they English teachers or university professors or increasingly business people who are maybe managing a production site or something of that nature. So we focus more on the person who's going to move there for a one, two, three-year hosting rather than just a short-term visit.
0: And China has just recently surpassed Canada as the number one trading partner of the United States, right? So there's a lot of reason for Americans to be over there on business, living there, or at least visiting for extended stays. Yes, yeah, certainly. certainly. Uh, all right. And Meili Chai, tell us about China A to Z, customs and culture.
1: Well, as the subtitles suggest, we wanted to focus more on the cultural and historical aspects and also the etiquette of China as opposed to just, you know, visiting here's the site, this is what you should see. here's a tourist, another tourist site. because frankly, as everyone who goes to China knows, the hotels and the trendy sites change from month to month. And both my father and I have been teaching about China, my father for forty five years and me for the last ten years. And these are things these essays came out about from questions basically our students have. and we have international students and students from all over the world will ask these types of questions. Well, you know, like, why is there such a divide between urban and rural? Or how is it for women in China? These types of details, as opposed to just simply, oh, here's this famous site, go see it.
0: And I would think you could make a case that cultural insight in itself is some of the most exciting, quote, sites of China to understand what's going on With the people and with the rapid development of that culture and so on. So, this book of yours is a collection of essays that I found just fascinating. When I think about China, I think I was recently in Shanghai and they told us they were building the equivalent of one skyscraper a day when you think of cubic meters of construction. And you look at the skyline and it's just like a fantasy. On the other side, you think of like a billion peasants somehow slaving away to support uh, a middle class, an entrepreneurial business class of maybe 100 million people, Uh, and you've got this confusing mix of communism and capitalism. Is it communist? Is it capitalist? What exactly is going on there? I'd like to discuss that a little bit. Stuart, what is your take on the mix of communism and capitalism and uh, how we can understand that as we travel?
3: Yeah, great question. Uh, really, since the 1970s, when uh, Deng Xiaoping took over as the uh, leader of China, the country began to change from a, a communist model to a capitalist model. Today, as you visit China, it's everywhere you look, it's just extreme capitalism. There's so many entrepreneurs, people on the street, selling things on the back of bicycles, all the way up to giant multinational companies like GM uh, and so on. So really, today, China is virtually capitalist except for a few key industries such as the media, the military, and some of the heavy industry. But the idea of poor people working to benefit the the wealthy, really the standard of living and the the per capita income is growing for all classes. It's certainly growing slower in the rural areas than it is in the cities, but it's a situation where all boats are definitely
1: rising.
0: So there's not half a billion people left behind subsidizing the free trade zones.
1: I would I would say I would agree with you on that and that they are subsidizing the urban areas. And this is something that President Hu Jintao has said he's going to make a priority. That's why they call it the harmonious rise, because they recognize that under the kind of just laissez-faire capitalism of the 90s, they have left behind some 800 million people. And even though it's getting slightly better in rural areas, you are really looking at people who maybe can't afford to even send their children to school because they can't afford 40 bucks, American dollars, to put their child in a school. Everything is charged now. One rural family can lose everything if they have a single illness, because they don't have a safety net right now.
0: So is the rationale that sooner or later, when things catch on fire in the big industrial zones, the rest of the country will be um, lifted up with that?
1: They've been trying to do that, and now the worst thing right now in China for rural areas is what's known as the Hukou Residency Permit System, and what it does is it makes rural Chinese essentially like what we call illegal aliens in America. They are citizens of China, but they're not allowed, technically speaking, to freely move from where they're born in a rural area to a city. Now, of course, if you've been to any Chinese cities, you see rural people everywhere. They're the ones who are working in the factories, are the ones who are selling things on the streets, are the ones who are cleaning and building the skyscrapers. But because they don't have a city residency permit, they're not allowed to send their children to public school. They're not allowed to go to the hospitals. They're not allowed to even call the police because all of these services are funded by the cities. And since the tax system hasn't yet been worked out in China so that it's equitable and the cities actually don't have enough money to finance all the migrants, there's um, an estimated 100 million Chinese who are just part of what they call the floating population. They just move back and forth from rural to urban, rural to urban. Urban areas and people don't really know where they are at any given time now they're not stupid so they have formed their own associations in cities sometimes with the tacit acknowledgement of city government um, and so they're trying to provide services for themselves. They'll pay in a little bit. Native place associations will pay in. Just, and so they'll provide their own security. They'll build their own schools for their children. And they'll build their own housing units. But technically, this is illegal. Now, there's only one city thus far in China, Xi'an, that has decided Okay, this is untenable. We're going to provide services for all Chinese citizens in our city, whether they have a residency permit or not. Hu Jintao has said that he wants to get rid of the system where you have only services based on where you're born and where you have your residency permit, but it has not yet effectively been established throughout all of
0: China. So Mei Li Chai, who we're listening to is the author of China A to Z. You're saying that there's actually, in a sense, two different citizenries or two different uh, groups of, uh, two different countries, really. One that has access to the economic gain and the other that, for the time being, is left out. Fred, you've been over there, you've biked through these masses. What's your take on
2: that? Well, Generalizations are um, always wrong, and China is a very large country and very diverse. If I go into major universities in China or small universities in China, which I do a lot, if I talk to a student, just, just talk to a student, chances are they're one of these rural. They aren't city kids. They come from tiny places.
0: And that must be the initiative of the government to get them there.
2: They're there by competitive exam. Mm-hmm. If they can score well on the exams, they're there. City kids have a little priority. Most big universities uh, take a certain percentage of their enrollment from that city where they where they are, but beyond that 20% or 30% that comes from the city, then the rest is strictly competitive. It
0: seems like there's a, a heritage of top-down government by w- the will of the government for the people. I mean, they will say, you know, it will be communist and everybody the same, you know, in the Cultural Revolution days, or it will be capitalism and we'll all be wealthy, it'll be everybody has one child. Do they still have that heritage of top-down attempted uh, for the good of the masses?
2: Well, if I can, most of my Chinese friends don't like their government any more than most Americans like their government. Chinese are about the same. But Chinese don't worry about it very much. They don't get to vote, so they don't think about it very much. They just go ahead with their lives and ignore the government. It doesn't have anything to do with them. But it's doing a good job for them. Their life is going uphill. I'm Rick Steves. This is
0: Travel with Rick Steves, and we are exploring China together with three experts, teachers and travelers who have written uh, three fascinating books on China. Fred Richardson writes uh, The Streetwise Guys Getting Around in China. Stuart Strother writes Living Abroad in China, published by Moon. And Mei Li Chai writes China A to Z, Customs and Culture. All of these specifics will be on our website if you want to check out the details on these books. Thank you for joining us again. This is Travel with Rick Steves and we're going to China.
2: sema 他們說大媽這樣可以, 他們說大媽這樣可以,
0: we'll take your calls for our guests in a moment. We're at 877-333-RICK and by email, the address is radio at ricksteves.com. Thanks for joining us as we consider travel in China today on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about China today, and I'm joined by three authors and travelers and teachers, Fred Richardson, Stuart Strother, and Mei Li Chai. What we've learned so far is it's a thriving, rapidly changing commotion of a billion people moving from one age into another, it seems, and experts can have different takes on it. Fred made a very good point that you can't make a generalization about all of China, so we're sorting through this. Fred was just talking about how he finds that the people have a differing opinions, often negative about their government. Stuart Strother, author of Living Abroad in China, what's your take on, on how popular the government is among the people of China these days?
3: Well, my friend at uh, Zhejiang University, who teaches economics, just explained to me that the Chinese typical Chinese person loves the president, loves the national government, appreciates the progress that they're in favor of, but uh, they hate their mayor, they hate their local mayor. And there's this tension between the national government and the local government, in that these local guys are, uh, in some ways, building their own fiefdoms, and there's a bit of corruption at the local level. So there's there's certainly this tension between the, the local and the national government.
0: Do people like President Hu the same way Russians like uh, Putin, uh, just because he's heavy-handed but seems to bring stability and progress?
3: I think so, sure.
0: Uh, Meili, what's your take on President Hu's popularity compared to uh, heavy I mean, when you think of Putin in Russia... You know, he's, he's not very democratic, but people really like him, and I think, understandably, they've had chaos in horrible economic times, and things are getting smoother. Is that the same with Hu?
1: Um, he's definitely not a Putin in that he doesn't have that kind of power, but people respect Hu Jintao because he has said openly that he knows corruption is a problem and he wants to combat it. He has said openly that he knows there's a problem between urban and rural development and he wants to bring the rural standard of living up. That's why people, they do really like President Hu Jintao because they believe that he's going to help the Chinese nation, but it's not because he's a strong man like Putin. He doesn't have that kind of power anymore. My father, who's the expert on this, he's a political scientist who's studied this for more than 50 years. He put together a chart in our book under the section government, and it shows just how diverse the Chinese government is. We think Hmm. monolithic communist government, you know, because that's how they give their opinions. And when they make an opinion, they make a new law, they speak in this kind of royal we, and it sounds as though they're all speaking in one voice. But in fact... There's three different systems, and within the party, the government, the military, each one of them has its own bureaucracy. Each one of them goes down from the national or central level to the provincial, the city, the county, and then the lowest level is the villages, factories, and schools, and they all have their own bureaucracy. And so, yes, people, they hate their local bureaucracy hmm. and <laughs> because that's what they have to deal with on a daily basis. And that's also, if you're going to be dealing of corruption, that's what you're going to see most often. And so a lot of people, when they make a petition, they try to go to Beijing and they try to reach the central government because they believe that the central government, if they knew what the local government was doing, would put a stop to
0: it. Is there a, a hard uh, offensive against corruption?
1: There is. I mean, they just, if you remember, there was a the scandal about the lead in the Chinese toys in America. Right. They executed a man. In China, who was supposed to be overseeing this vast bureaucracy. And so, I mean, they took it very seriously. But now the Whoa. problem is. It is, that is bu- pretty
0: seriously execution. Oh, for, yeah. Except for he's, building a bad toy.
1: Well, he was supposed to be overseeing the um, the general quality of things. And, and do overse- the people on the
0: streets celebrate that? They go, right on, let's do it better.
1: Uh, they. Absolutely, know that there's corruption. They absolutely know that they want things to be done correctly because their economy depends upon it.
2: When, Fred. when someone is executed for corruption, people that I talk to say, Good, and they ought to get a couple more of them. You know, we may not, I don't like the death penalty. I never have. I don't like this. But China is not my country. I'm a guest there. And It's the system in China.
0: Well, they're trying to harness the energies of a billion people with a very tough economic My uh, friends across
2: huge diversity in China, Tibetans and Uyghur Muslims and Han Chinese and young and old. No one has ever, I've never been able to get anyone to admit to me a fear of being unjustly accused of something.
0: So there's a different outlook that way.
2: Yeah, they don't have very many lawyers, and maybe they don't need them. We do. (laughs) We need our lawyers because we are afraid of this.
0: When you have this fast um, development, let's get into tourism in in China. Is the old culture just being bulldozed, or is there a sense of saving the heritage so that uh, in the future when China has its shiny affluence that it's been working on and everybody is flitting in there to enjoy that, will there be anything left from the old society and culture to see?
1: I would say that Chinese people are extremely proud of their culture, and they are trying now to try to slow down some of that massive bulldozing that was going on earlier. And for example, in Beijing, they have destroyed a lot of the historic alleys known as hutongs, but they've now decided they can't mm. destroy them all anymore. And so they've set off national historic districts mm. where they're going to just preserve it and keep it as it is because they realize this is a treasure and they don't want to destroy all of their culture. They realize it's very, very important.
0: Yeah, so, when I was in Beijing, it's, I honestly felt like stilettos were just knifing through the urban terrain, these skyscrapers cutting through these beautiful characteristic little alleyways. And I thought, how on earth can these little two-story buildings compete economically with somebody who wants to develop a skyscraper and so on? So it's interesting that they are aware of that, like um, Europe has done so well to save its heritage. This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring China. We've got with us Fred Richardson, who writes a a guide called Getting Around in China. It's a guidebook available uh, at this time in China, and apparently it's available anywhere in China, so when you do get to China, look for the Streetwise Guide, Getting Around in China, for Fred's insight. Stuart Strother writes for uh, Moon Publications, a book about living abroad in China. And then we're also joined by Mei Li Chai, who has joined her father in writing a collection of fascinating essays looking at different slices of Chinese culture. Our phone number is 877 333 Rick, or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Let's talk to Jesse, who's calling us from Seattle. Hi, Jesse.
3: Hi, how are you doing?
0: Great, thanks for your call. Do you have a question for our Chinese experts?
1: I did, and you guys briefly touched
0: on it. Um, I know that a lot of China's historic charm was destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. And I was just wondering if there were cities in China where traditions have been preserved? Like entire cities that are preserved um, as a historical monument? Yeah, something
3: similar to, you know, when you go to Rothenburg in Germany. Right.
0: Well, actually, that's a good question because there is Ro- Rothenburg and all sorts of towns in Europe that are nobody can change any of the buildings. And then there are techs in Ireland where, apart from the historic architecture, the government subsidizes the traditional lifestyles as much as the traditional language and so on. May Lee or, or Stuart or Fred, do you have any ideas on that? Sure, all,
1: I bet we could all list our favorite historically beautiful cities. I mean, for example, Suzhou, the Venice of China. It's a city that really is built along these series of canals and bridges and... They've taken great pains to preserve this, and as well as the scholars' gardens. If you've ever been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, they have the scholars' garden there. That's where it originated, Suzhou. And then if you go down to Yunnan province in the southern part of China, near the Burma border, where they have so many different kinds of minority peoples, the government does give them subsidies so they don't have to give up their culture. They also don't have Hmm. to participate in the one-child policy because then it would be genocidal.
0: Wow, that's interesting. The government will pick and choose ethnicities that need to do this one one-child thing, depending on on how those ethnicities are faring in the general populace.
2: The ethnicities are exempt from the one-child policy.
0: Meaning the minorities? Minorities. Minorities. Okay. Stuart, you had a thought uh, to answer.
3: Yeah, Jesse, I would also suggest that most visitors will make their way to Shanghai, and just outside of Shanghai there are uh, four or five different little river towns. One of them actually was featured in the movie Mission Impossible 3. I was just there last week. It's uh, a lot of fun. But also I'd like to point out that um, you mentioned the Cultural Revolution and how it had an impact on, uh, on places and people. I'd just like to point out many of the historic places were actually put to other uses during the Cultural Revolution rather than destroyed. And when we lived in Shanghai, we went to a, uh, a church that during the Cultural Revolution was used by the Red Guards as a practice place for their political dramas. So it was kind of fun to uh, be in such a historic place. Today, of course, it's used as a church both uh, for Chinese and foreigners
0: so it was it was preserved because it was kept in use even though it was used for a different purpose
3: Right it's such a wonderful I building see. that uh,
0: right and they recognized that even back then. That's right yep all right Jesse thanks for your call
3: Thank you.
2: If I could make a quick comment on that, I would say go to any place that's not mentioned in your guidebook, and you will find, by poking around, old things that are left around. I was just thinking about
0: that, Fred, again, as I look at this great photograph on the cover of your book. There's nothing charming about this scene of you on a bike, but it just looks fascinating, and it inspires me to want to go to a big industrial town and just see how these people are going through life.
2: This photograph on the cover is a wholesale market... You can find this kind of wholesale market anywhere in China, in big cities, in small towns. There will always be wholesale markets, and they're like this. That was up on the Tibetan Plateau in Xining in central China, 7,500 feet, but you can find this anywhere.
0: And I would think as a traveler, you'd want to go to the famous places. I wouldn't. I want to know who lives out back. No, no, no. no. But you want to balance it. Of course, you know, you'll want to see the famous stuff, but then you want to go through the back door, what you're talking about. (laughs) And uh, I would suppose 99% of China
2: is tourist-free. 99% of China isn't mentioned in any guidebook. If you picked up, piled up 20 or 30 guidebooks about China, 99% of China won't be mentioned in any of them. China has maybe 200 cities over a million population. 150 of those won't be mentioned in any guidebook. Stuart Strother, your take on that?
3: Oh, I totally agree. And I think any visitor to China should uh, definitely schedule some time just to leave their pals and just go wander like uh, like the photo on uh,
0: yeah. the book. So you take 200 cities of over a million people. Something like that. Something like that. And most of them don't have any tourism.
2: They aren't in any guidebook. That no. doesn't mean right. they don't have tourism. They oh, aren't right. in any guidebook.
0: We got May on the line in Chicago. May, thanks for your call. Thank you.
3: Um, my question is totally different. We'll be touring China for about 19 days and it's with a tour and it's goes from Beijing to Lhasa and to Shanghai and many places in between. I've been advised in these guidebooks to get inoculations, and I've traveled a fair amount and not worried about inoculations, but what I read in the guidebooks makes me a little more concerned. Are they being overly cautious?
1: It depends on how far off the beaten track you go. I mean, I when I go to China, I don't get any special inoculations. And if you're only going to major cities, if you get sick, any hotel can take care of you. But, you know, gamma um a tetanus shot is probably good advice for anywhere in the world that you visit these days.
0: I've okay. heard this, but I'm not sure that if a country requires a shot, it's to protect its people from you. And if a country advises a shot, it's to protect you from them.
3: Well, these lists came off of the State Department, actually, and it was quite extensive.
0: Right. I would say, if you're going to, especially if you're going to get off the beaten path, you should probably be conservative in, in those inoculations before mm-hmm. your trip.
2: It requires, it's your comfort level that's important. Uh, I find medical care in China excellent. There's a chapter in my book on being sick, how, how you deal with the medical system. And some of my doctor friends in China say, hey, I know more about getting around in the medical system than their patients. But I don't speak Chinese very well. Their patients speak Chinese. They can ask mm-hmm. questions. I need to know more. Traveler or foreigner needs to know more that medical system, it's excellent and it's cheap. So, Fred, they say in India there's
0: two kinds of travelers, those who know they have worms and those who don't know they have worms. I mean, in other words, everybody's got diarrhea. I mean, not it's life-threatening, but it's just a drag to have, you know, deli belly or whatever. Is that a problem in China?
2: I don't find that a problem at all. What I have is I either have a cold or I'm going to catch one. Why is that? Uh, well, people are closer together, and also all my life I caught colds. I'm am I'm, I'm a sicky. And so I catch colds. But as far as parasites, I've never picked up one in more than four years in China. And out on the beaten path, I carry some Chinese medicine for the uh, uh, deli belly. That's a, just a, a natural uh, right. herbal cure that I wouldn't go anywhere, even in America, without carrying it in my little medical bag.
0: Mei Li, you're Chinese, and I think your father was born in China, I think. Yeah. So I... you have an advantage. What would you advise Americans heading over there um, just for to be smart with their health?
1: Um, get the gamma globulin because um, that'll prevent you from getting hepatitis A from food poisoning. And if you know your meat is not, if you if you eat outside of a hotel, you know if you eat on a street stand, obviously you're going to be more in danger than not. That being said, I have the worst food allergies on the planet. And I've gotten sicker in London than I have in China.
0: Okay, enough of health. Let's talk hedonism here. When you travel, you want experiences. When you go to Japan, you want to take the, the bath before dinner. When you go to Thailand, and a massage is nice. Uh, when I go to Egypt, I want to rent a felucca and cruise at sunset on the Nile. What do you do in China, apart from this immersion in an emerging industrial powerhouse to get a sense of the energy of the place, what do you do just for the magic, for the hedonism, for the experience that you'll never forget?
2: I like to meet ordinary people, and by ordinary, I never know who that's going to be. It might be a businessman, it might be a student, it might be a farmer. I like to just meet ordinary people and learn something about their ordinary lives. That's what find I it's love. you
0: easy for an American to be a subject of uh, interest and curiosity among locals who have never seen tourists?
2: Yeah, foreigners are always, um, uh, well, we get stared at a lot, and if you can't find a way to deal with being stared at and accept it, Mm-hmm. You probably shouldn't go to China. That's a you're plus. going to, you're you, going you to can be turn stared at. Plus, yeah, but but you can make contact with people.
0: Stuart, what do you do for, um, or what do you advise for just some of the memorable experiences?
3: Well, for me, I've found uh, since when I first went to China as a college student back in the uh, early '90s that playing Chinese chess is such a great way to connect with Chinese children, Chinese seniors um, on the trains, in the parks. Playing Chinese chess is a great way to connect with people. It's a simple game. It's a lot of fun. Everybody in China plays it. That's a great way to make new <laughs> friends.
0: That's a great idea.
3: It's a very public game. You can't spend 10 or 15 minutes walking down the street in any Chinese city and not see people hovered over a uh, Chinese chess board.
0: I love that, I because, I mean, I relay that to backgammon in, in uh, Turkey, for instance. I just never oh, wanted exactly. to go by with that. So Chinese chess, it's easy to learn?
3: Very easy, very All easy. All right.
0: Meili, I'm surprised you don't have an uh, essay on Chinese chess in your book here. It's just so many interesting essays.
1: Oh, there's so many things to put in. I mean, it'd be a <laughs> know, thousand I'm, pages I'm, longer. <laughs> I'm
0: kidding. It's a great collection of essays. What, what would it, one of the uh, insights that you would have for uh, an easy way to connect with locals, as Stuart was offering there?
1: Go to a local park. You know, you will see grandparents with the grandchildren flying kites. You'll see, if you go early in the morning, people doing their morning tai chi. And they, they're they so friendly. You can join the tai chi club there. Later, towards evening and dusk, you'll see people doing public ballroom dancing.
0: Will you see public displays of affection?
1: With young people, you will. You definitely will. People often make out in parks. I would not recommend participating in that because you really will draw a crowd. But yes, you know, and everyone just kind of ignores them, even though it's it's in I, plain I,
0: sight. I see you've got a chapter on that in your book. So going to the parks, and uh, you know, all of these things require being a little bit of an extrovert. That's right. And I think that's a, one of the best skills you can take when you're when you're traveling.
2: I wouldn't anyway. use the word extrovert. I would say being open.
0: Being open. Okay.
2: Being open yeah. to let other people approach you. And if you're together with someone, people won't approach you. They'll leave you your privacy. Can you? But approach if them? you are by yourself, everyone will approach you. Okay.
3: Rick, I think we really need to answer your hedonism question. Yeah. Um, we can't let that one slip by. Thank you,
2: thank you. Let's get into some hedonism. You know what
3: I do every time? Now I lived in China for a couple years, and yeah. now I go back uh, usually twice a year leading educational tours of uh, college students. And every time I go, I let my hair grow a little long and put off the haircut because the barbers and beauty salons are so amazing in China. Uh, you Typically, I get a haircut for maybe $1, $2, $3 U.S., and it generally includes a uh, massage uh, as just part of the haircut. Wow! Uh, and also the foot massage. Yes. Uh, we stay at a little place in Shanghai that has a uh, 28 Kwai foot massage. So that's about four to five dollars US, and it's an hour long massage from your knee on down. And you can get a full body massage for five six dollars.
0: That was my wife and my one ad- adventure uh, when we went out and tried to do something hedonistic in Shanghai. It was great. A whole hour working on your legs from the knee down, and it was. And the whole ambiance of the experience was, was very cool.
3: Yeah and you walk so much in China that
0: it really hits the yeah. spot. 877 333 7425 is our number, and radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. It's Travel with Rick Steves as we look at what you can expect when you visit China this year.
1: Hello, I'm Mehlika Seval Mele from Turkey. Now I'll give you a tongue twister in Turkish. Bir berber, bir berbere, bire berber, gel beraber, Berberistan'da berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Which means, one barber to another barber said, Come barber, let's open up a barbershop in Barberistan together. Bir berber, bir berbere, bire berber, gel beraber, Berberistan'da berber dükkanı açalım demiş.
0: Wow. <laughs> that was good. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring and at the same time learning about China in hopes that we can all go there and check out this emerging superpower. I've got with me three experts who have written three fascinating books, each one distinct. Fred Richardson, who writes the streetwise guide called Getting Around in China, Meili Chai, who's written a cultural primer with a collection of essays that are just fascinating uh, with her advantage being a Chinese-American, China A to Z. And Stuart Strother has written a book for people living and working in China called Living Abroad in China, published by Moon. Mary's on the line in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Hi, Mary. Hi. Thanks for your call.
1: Thank you for taking my call. I have a a question
0: for your guests. Do they recommend that Americans traveling in China, should they hire a translator if they plan on spending any length of time there? And also, are there any particular areas in China that Americans
1: should avoid, that they may be dangerous.
0: Good questions. Comments on that, my experts?
1: You don't have to hire a translator unless you're specifically going to be doing like field research. In any city you go to, there are tour guides who have been fully trained in language schools throughout China, and they can speak fluent English. That's my feeling on it.
0: Can you hire a guide to be your own private guide and translator quite easily?
1: You can. You can just if your own hotel doesn't have it, go to a bigger hotel and talk to the concierge, and they can hook you up with people very professional. Actually, I've met translators who can speak five or six European languages fluently. I always feel like an idiot because I can only speak a couple languages, hmm. um, but. In any place you would go as you know, to start off as a tourist, you'll be able to find a translator and a fantastic guide who'll be able to communicate for you.
0: Fred Richardson, you spend a lot of time in towns that aren't very touristic and apparently you don't speak Chinese very well. Do you hire local
2: guides? I never have. Since the first time I was in China when I went to China in nineteen eighty eight, I knew nothing. I was so green. Uh, everything worked. I always found a bed, I always got food. And I made friends. You've been going there for 20 years. Yeah. Wow. And what a lot of change you've seen. Hiring a translator is something I've never done. Uh, I, if I need a translator, I may meet a student who just goes with me to practice their English.
0: Well, that's, yeah, that's fine. And design. that's
2: what they want to practice their English, and they'll do anything to spend time with me to practice for the chance to practice their English. So there are freely available translators everywhere. Go to a university. You'll pick up... Stu- go to a middle school. You'll pick up all your over the developing world. I everywhere. Found it, if
0: you go to the university and have lunch, you're the main attraction. Or
1: go to a park. They or have a park. <laughs> English Corners, they call them. And there's just people who go to practice their English and hope that foreigners come by.
2: I've met some of my best friends at English Corners. English Corners. It's a thing where you go... The Chinese who are studying English have no chance to speak to a foreigner, no chance to speak to a native speaker. They go to an English corner, and the rule is everybody speaks English to each other. And the chance that a foreigner will drop into that English corner—wow! Now that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, can ask that's at far your hotel, than,
3: uh, paying for a professional translator.
0: Oh, and I would think when you pay for a professional translator at a high-rise Western-style hotel. You're going to be sucked right into the shopping circuit and all that sort of thing. And you may not
2: get somebody that's interested in what you're interested
0: in. That's right. So you just ask your hotel, where's the, what do you call it, the English corner?
2: Yeah. The the hotel probably doesn't know. Go to the university or the school and ask the students.
1: Or go to the park. Local parks all have English corners. And you'll be able to tell because there'll be a bunch of young-looking students with glasses, and they'll be speaking in
2: English. (laughs) But the English corner may happen at a specific time. Like at the park, it may happen in this spot every Wednesday evening. I love so it. So you have to find that out. Once you've figured that out, then you just arrive.
0: Now, Mary in Ocean Springs, I think also asked about, uh, do you have to be careful where you venture? Now, Mei Li, you, you would be pretty savvy, I think, in China, and you might have an enthusiastic American on a bicycle like Fred here going off to the far corners where they've never seen a tourist. Can he get in any trouble by, in your assessment by just uh, exploring the back streets?
1: Again, this is a diversity issue. I think if if you look Very white, you're not going to have as many problems as if you look Asian. For example, if you're an Asian American woman and you venture by yourself, I mean, I was almost kidnapped at one point when I was going off to these villages in uh, rural Yunnan, because there is a lot of kidnapping of brides. Um, But the more foreign you look, the actually the safer you are. Now, of course, the red light districts at night. Okay, obviously, you know, that's a criminal area. You go at your own peril. Um, But I would say that in general, you know, you're going to be very safe. And if you make some friends, like if you go to university, if you meet people at the English corner, ask them what are safe areas. They'll tell you. They don't want you to be injured. They really, really don't want foreigners to have a bad time in China because it makes them all lose face.
0: So if if you're just aware, you know when you're getting into a bad district. Is that what you're saying?
1: There are specific red light areas, you know, and some people seek that out. I would say, you know... Yes, there's a certain kind of fun to be had, but there's also a lot of pickpockets and there's also a lot of other crimes that go on there. So be
0: careful. Is this a, is this a, a sort of a symptom of the new economic freedom in China that these red light districts would be popping up like would be famous in Bangkok or something like this? I would like say this? it's a
2: part of humanity.
0: Part of humanity, yeah, but I mean, um, Southeast Asia is famous for that. And now it's everywhere. It's everywhere in China
2: too. Everywhere, yeah. everywhere in the world. And you, Fred.
0: Re, uh,
3: I, yeah, I think it's quite different in China, though. I think uh, comparison to Bangkok is really unfair, and that uh,
0: how would it be different?
3: Well, um, just the scope. Uh, you know, we use terms like sex industry for places like Bangkok. Right. Um, I lived in China for two years with a family with two kids. I return every uh, twice a year with college students, and it, it is such. Maylee exactly right. It is such a safe place for uh, Westerners. So uh, I think the, the comparison to places
0: like okay. Bangkok or... So it's not uh, a big, thriving sex industry like you'd, you'd find in Not Bangkok. the same not way. All. No. You know, in the Netherlands and in much of Europe, the red-light district is sort of just a low-key corner of any business community. You've I got,
2: find the red-light districts a little embarrassing. I tend to right. avoid them for that reason, not for any other reason. right.
0: Now, um, Meili, you said uh, Asians are, are at risk of being kidnapped. That's well, fascinating. Well,
1: Asian women, I mean, like, I travel by myself a lot and I go to really off the beaten path. I mean, I walked to Burma from Shishuang Bana in Yunnan and. All my Chinese friends said, don't do this. It's really dangerous. I did it, and I almost got kidnapped. Now, most people are not going to encounter that, but, you know, if you go off the beaten path, obviously you want to tell people where you're going. I didn't
0: do that. I was stupid. You know. How do you almost get kidnapped?
1: I was encircled by a group of men. Merchants? No. Bride merchants. Well... God help me, you know, I'm assuming, and um, they encircled me, and they tried to grab me, and then I started shouting at them in Mandarin and Chinese, and I convinced them I was American, so they let me go.
0: If you hadn't convinced them you were American, you might have actually been bundled away and sold into somebody else's family in a faraway village.
1: It happens, but uh, one useful word for all women to learn is bu, it means no. And if you say it loudly and forcefully like that, that's the proper tone. And it, if you say it in a crowd, everyone will know what you're saying, and they'll come, and they'll, and people will come to your aid. And well, the only thing I would say about danger for in China is that when you're in a crowd scene, remember, it's very crowded, so there are pickpockets.
0: If you're an, uh, a Westerner or white American... You're going to be very high profile, I would think, right. from a so theft just, point of view.
1: So just, you know, put your wallet maybe like in something that goes underneath your jacket. Wear a
0: money belt or zip yeah. it up. Yeah. And I mean, uh, just, assume a commotion is probably a fake commotion if it's around
2: you.
1: Yeah, common sense things. It's not as dangerous as many countries. It's not as dangerous as many cities in America.
2: Right. Oh, it's quite a bit safer than America. I all find right. myself safer in China everywhere, all the time, than almost anywhere in America.
0: And you live in a safe corner of America.
2: And I live in a safe <laughs> corner in America. And if you like danger, you better pick a different country. China's not it. You've got to really look for it. Okay.
0: we got Meredith on the line in Atlanta. Hi, Meredith. Hi. Thanks for your call.
3: Well, I have two comments and then
1: um, a question, I guess. I was in um, China last year for two weeks uh, on a tour. And one of the things that I noticed and pleased me quite a, a bit was that um, to see how many Asian tourists there were particularly at the Great Wall, I, I didn't feel like I was just surrounded by a bunch of other Americans, and that was really nice to feel like I was there with um, with other Asians, and they were appreciating this, this spectacular piece of heritage that they had that the whole world could enjoy.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, another thing, I wanted to make a comment for anyone who is going on a tour, and that tour is led by a Chinese person. Um, be sure that they recognize that your activities could reflect negatively on them and cause them to lose points, which could cause them to lose their license and
1: their livelihood.
0: That's interesting. Um, Do we have any follow-up thoughts on that from our guests?
2: Don't put your friends in danger.
0: How would you put your friend in danger?
2: Don't ask them to do stupid things that you might do by yourself that you know, I I want to go visit a nuclear power plant that's under construction. I don't Ah. take a friend with me.
0: I see, because you would be uh, less likely to be punished for that. But Well, a, a friend, they uh, may tell me to leave. But the Chinese person might lose their job or,
2: or They might get in trouble, yeah. And you don't know what the trouble is, and they don't either.
0: May Lee, thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to have a really big political discussion, you know, save it for private times of people you know, because the Chinese government isn't going to arrest you and put you in prison. That would make them lose face. But later they could say that you're, you you caused trouble on the people, the Chinese people with you. That's
0: very thoughtful. And I, I remember that was a sensitivity we had when traveling during the Cold War in uh, the Warsaw Pact and in the Soviet Union and so on. You had good friends, but you knew you could get away with stuff, but your friends couldn't, and they might not pay the price then, but And they you be may noted. be
2: punished by your friends being punished later.
0: Yeah. Hey, Meredith, very good comments. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're exploring China with three fascinating authors, Mei Li Chai, who writes China, A to Z, Stuart Strother, joined by his wife Barbara, writes living abroad in China, And we've got Fred Richardson, the backdoor traveler of China, who's written a book called Getting Around in China, published by Streetwise Guides, uh, distributed mostly in China. For specifics on any of these books, go to our website at ricksteves.com. In the radio corner, you can find details on how to follow up with this information. When we're talking about China, we're talking about fast changes, and huge developments. They say in 20 years China will have the world's largest economy. They say it'll dominate the Internet. We have a chance now to go there and see this unfolding. It's really important when you go to have a little cultural background so you can understand um, and and maximize your experience. Uh, Dana's on the phone in Thousand Oaks, California. Hi, Dana. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hey. Got a comment or a question?
2: Yeah, basically my question is, uh, you know, like we have a a tourist basically embargo to, to Cuba, and they say it's a communist country, and, and, but we have open travel to China. Do you feel in any way that traveling to China helps support and continue the same
1: uh, government?
0: Good comment. Let's let each of our guides comment briefly on that. Stuart, what's your take on the morality of Americans going to China to uh, help prop up a non-democratic government?
3: Well, I think the main thing is that China is, uh, since the 1970s, changing from a communist system to a capitalistic system. Incomes are rising from the poorest peasant farmer all the way up to the wealthiest entrepreneur. And I think that uh, going to China with your tourist dollars is just helping to improve their economy, and it's also helping with diplomacy, just being friendly to people who years ago were
0: considered our uh, enemies, perhaps. Uh, Ma Li Chai, what is your take on that?
1: I feel that the more people who go to China, the more open it's going to become, and I think that it actually helps China open up to the world and become less afraid. And it will help people. I know I have I face this moral dilemma. I went to live in China. Right after the Tiananmen Square Massacre, I had got this fellowship to go teach there, and I didn't know if I should go. I asked a Chinese professor I knew, and he said, you must go. You must go to keep the door open for your students, he meant my students in China. And I agree. When you as a foreigner, when you just go and you interact with Chinese people, you are bringing them the world as well. And that makes it harder for the government to control and to close those doors.
0: Tourism can be a vital force for peace in that regard. And uh, Fred Richardson, what's your
2: take on that? Don't be surprised when your Chinese friends know more about the rest of the world, more accurately and with less propaganda mixed in than Americans. Chinese are very, ordinary Chinese are very well informed about the outside world. Our news is very controlled and very limited. We don't talk about the outside world in any real sense. Isn't that an irony? So maybe when we go to China, we need to educate ourselves, too, and be a little less American.
1: I agree with Fred.
0: I'm just fascinated by the irony of people that are raised in an environment where there is no, quote, free press, become savvy about press and news and information. There's no
2: free press about domestic China. Well— Okay, I see that. If you want to report about things outside, that's what the best journalists do.
0: And the hazard of being in a country like ours where we pride ourselves in not having censorship and so on is oh, the fact yes. that we are self-censored in order to get our, our voices on Absolutely. the air. Fascinating stuff, and I'm sure that that's something you'll discuss in the parks at the English language clubs. I want to thank all of our guests for being with us. In a very quick nutshell, tell me your vision of the future of of China. Is it good? Is it bad? What are we going to see? Just in a sentence or two. First of all, Fred.
2: Well, first, Rick, you've several times talked about China, maybe in a decade or two, being the largest economy in the world, maybe being the leader in internet. I'm not so sure those things aren't true right now. It is China is the trading biggest, partner. China is the biggest broadband market in the world. China has five times as many mobile phones as any other country, probably six times as many. China's economy may well surpass the U.S. economy in total size, according to some economists, um, according to a recent article in The Wall Street Journal, actually, within a few years, within possibly few years. possibly less than 10 years.
0: Stuart Strother, what's your take on the future?
3: Well, I think the future for China is quite rosy. I'm really optimistic, uh, as are the Chinese people. You know, their uh, government takes a long-term view when they plan for projects. Uh, I suppose my main concern would be related to the environment, Um, Much of economic development everywhere uh, has environmental consequences. So the Chinese are aware of this, and I think they, uh, with their recent green GDP policies, I'm hopeful that the environment will improve as the economy improves.
0: And Mei Li Chai?
1: I think China is going to continue to be a very, very interesting place in terms of its development, and I think it's going to become closer to the United States. I don't see it as our Future enemy, and I think that you know it's, China isn't going to just be the superpower that replaces the United States because I don't think that paradigm is viable in the 21st century. But I think we're going to have positive things and some negative things, but it will we will have closer ties and we will have uh, more friendship.
0: Great thoughts. I want to thank our guests, Stuart Strother, author of Living Abroad in China. Thanks Mei- for having me. Mei Li Chai, author of China A to Z. Thanks so much. And Fred Richardson, author of The Streetwise Guide, Getting Around in China.
2: Thanks, Rick. It was a lot of fun.
0: I guess I need to learn one Chinese word out of this uh, interview. Uh,
2: zai, zai, jian. What is zaijian that?
1: jian means goodbye. Zaijian. goodbye. See you again. Say it again, Zai jian.
0: Zai jian. Yes, perfect. Good work, Rick. jian. I'm on my way. Happy travels. Mm, I'm gonna get you on a slow boat to China. All to myself alone. I'm gonna get you on a slow boat to China. All to myself alone.哈，再见。<laughs> <laughs>
2: Travel with Rick
0: Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication
2: support from Robin Stencil, Sonia Grosset, and Ashley Southwick, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Special thanks to Reed Fletcher at Wyoming Public Radio for engineering help today.
0: Our Theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean, are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.